Thank you, Ryan and team, so much for leading us to sing about to Christ. John, thank you for recommending that song, His Robes for Mine, introducing it to us. The first word I tried to teach my daughter wasn't to daddy, it was propitiation. And it didn't didn't stick, Uh, but I'm so happy to sing it today. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Our church purpose here at Millwood Baptist Church comes entirely in its language from the book of Ephesians. The purpose of our church, we believe the purpose essentially of every local church is the joyfully building up of the body of Christ for the glory of God. This building up language, this structure Building up language comes from chapters 2 and chapters 4 where Paul refers to the church as a temple being built. And Paul refers to discipleship as building one another up in love. Today I want us to consider in building up the body of Christ, and building up the church, what do we need now? What do we need I don't know about you, but whether it's Chip and Joanna or whether it's any other show, whether it's Rust car shows, the renovation shows, I love it. I just love watching the house go from almost falling down, termites holding hands, to family moves in, lives there, magazine cover worthy. I don't know if you're like me, but when I watch those shows, I have an internal commentary running, critiquing everything. You know, if that were me, I would not knock down that wall. You know, if that were me, I would not put that color of floor in there. What they really ought to do is get this color of paint and kind of move some of this front, and then that would really be a nice house. Do you have commentary like this in your mind that runs through your mind? as you watch those shows. If they would just do this, if they would just do this, if they would just move this around, if they would just then, oh, that, that would be it. I wonder if today in your heart and in your mind you have a running commentary about what the church needs now. Do you have a sentence in your mind that has come up in the weeks and the months past? You know, if the church would just Just what? If the church would just build up like, if the church would just do, 
How do you fill in the blank? How do you pray for the church? That'd be a good thought. Do you get past criticalness in your heart to pray for the church? When you pray, what do you pray to God? God, if you would just... What's one thing? In one word, here's what the church... Paul refers to it as the building, the the temple of Christ where God is to dwell and to be glorified. The church is to build one another up. Here is what the church needs now. Christ. Christ. To know Christ that we might live Christ. What the church needs is to know Christ that we might live Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Father, God, we come to you and recognize our need for Christ. In salvation, from our sin in passing from death to life in every part of our sanctification, in every part of our building up the body of Christ. We need Christ. Father, would you help us here by your word understand this need and apply this need to our own hearts today. Would you flex your muscles by helping us know Christ in our hearts today? Help us comprehend the love of Christ now. For your glory and our joy in Christ's name, amen. Everything the church needs is in Christ. This is the main point of Paul's letter in the book of Ephesians, in Christ. Go with me back a couple pages to your left and just look at Ephesians chapter 1, read verses 13 through 14, follow along as I read it aloud. Ephesians 1 verse 3, that is 3 through 14. And I just want you to watch for the phrase or a version of the phrase, in Christ. We're going to spend some time for just a moment just showing and highlighting how in Christ is a major, I think, the dominating theme in the book of Ephesians. And see how it is the thing that we need more than anything and that it defines all of our needs. If you're one of those people who are taking notes, you We're going to go pretty quickly here. You might not be able to write down everything, but you can just make this note. Go back later and look up all the places that Ephesians says, in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, as an example, verses 3 through 14, look for the phrase, in Christ, or some version of it. I'll try to emphasize them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us where? In Christ Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him with every spiritual blessing or before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glory grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him, in Christ that is. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, in Christ, things on, in heaven and things on earth. In Him, that is, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Verse 13, in Him, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I don't know if you're counting, but that's about 12 times in this passage alone, in Christ. Paul refers to Christ over 40 times in this little six-chapter book, over 50 times if you count the times he refers to Christ simply by his title, Lord. Just listen to it again. Put the in Christ Everything we just read, blessed in Christ, chosen in Christ, predestined for adoption through Christ, redeemed through the blood of Christ, God's purpose is in Christ, God unites all things in Christ, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, the church is the first to hope in Christ, in Christ we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. There is not a moment in time, past, present, or future nor is there a place in heaven or earth where God has a purpose, a plan, or a blessing which is not in Christ. Whatever we have from God, whatever we hope from God, is in Christ. It's a dominating theme of the book of Ephesians. If you were to keep reading, you can scan maybe and, and keep up, but I just want you to hear it through the book of Ephesians and through references, a few a few thoughts as Paul prays in chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. He says, because I heard of your faith in Jesus, to summarize his prayer, I pray that you would know the power of God in Jesus. I want you to know God's power in Christ. In chapter 2, verse 5, we are made alive together with Christ. In chapter 2, verse 7, God shows his kindness to us in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10, as Christians, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, we were once a divided people, but now we are one in Christ. He is saying all these things explicitly as you look through Ephesians. This is not my theological interpretation. Paul is mentioning Christ this often, but now we are one in Christ by the blood of Christ, he says. Paul refers to 
itself in chapter 3, verse 1, as a prisoner of Christ. Why? Because, chapter 3, verse 6, because of the mystery of Christ, that Jews and Gentiles are one new people in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 11, God's eternal purpose of uniting all peoples into one church is realized in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 20, all glory is to God forever and ever in the church and in Christ. Then at the end of chapter 3, the book makes a turn from indicative to imperative. The indicative always precedes the imperative. That means the doctrine or the teaching always precedes the instruction on how to live. And there in chapter 3, going into chapter 4, Paul makes that shift from the doctrine of Christ to how to live as those who are in Christ. And Paul does not forsake the theme of in Christ, remembering Christ, speaking of Christ explicitly for the rest of the book. In chapter 4, verse 7, gifts are given around the church according to the measure of Christ's gift. Chapter 4, verse 12, discipleship is building up the body of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13, maturity as a Christian is to achieve the fullness of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 20, we should no longer walk in the futility of mind and the hardness of heart. Why, Paul says, because that's not the way you learned Christ. We should forgive one another. Chapter 4, verse 32, because God in Christ forgave you. Walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us. Chapter 5, verse 5, Paul warns those who persist in sexual sin and idolatry not, do not have part in the kingdom of Christ and God. Chapter 5, verse 20, when we sin, we sing to, when we sing, that is, we sing to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we sing, we sing in Christ's name. Chapter 5, verse 32, the whole mystery of marriage is Christ and the church. Chapter 6, verse 5, bondservants are to obey their masters like they would Christ. And here Paul's benediction to the letter is not just adding Christian greetings and throwaway phrases at the end of his letter. It's like he just wants to find some way to say Christ again. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23 to 24, Paul ends the letter, peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Church, I think it's very, very safe to say we have thought too little of Christ. The church only needs more of Christ in every conceivable way. And our passage this morning, chapter 3, verse 14 through 19, is showing us a fundamental way in which the church gets more of Christ. What the church needs is more of Christ. In terms of indicatives, we need more knowing Christ, more understanding Christ, more studying Christ. In terms of imperatives in the second half of the book, we need more examples of Christ, more observing the life and the goodness of Christ. We need to know Christ more and live Christ more. That's what we need for the church to be built up, Christ in every way. How can this happen? 
How do we get from where we are to knowing Christ more? More knowledge of Christ. More living like Christ. How do we get there? How how does that happen? Here's the answer I think Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 19. By God granting us a spirit-empowered comprehension of the love of Christ. We get more knowledge of Christ and we live Christ more when God grants us a spirit-empowered comprehension of the love of Christ. What we lack is a God-granted, Spirit-empowered comprehension of the love of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 14, Paul, moving to the end of the first half of his letter, says he's praying. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from every family in heaven and on earth, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I heard one sermon mention recently that the common Jewish manner of prayer was standing, eyes to heaven, arms stretched out forward or to the sky. So Paul kneeling wouldn't have been Paul's kind of normal, daily, religious structure of prayer, stature of prayer. Rather, Paul is going above and beyond to show there is a power before us that we need to kneel before. There is an ability in God and an inability in us that draws Paul to get down on his knees because he knows he needs something from God. So he comes in the position of humility. And here's what he prays in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, according to the riches of all of God's glory, he may grant you, the church, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. See the Trinitarian work. There's multiple, multiple times this happens through the book of Ephesians. You see the Father, Son, Spirit working together. In this passage, the Father grants it. The Spirit empowers it. Christ being the object of their work. You might be asking questions like Nicodemus did back in John chapter 3. But how in the world can Christ dwell in our hearts? This is one of those weird churches. We're all about to go in the back and they're going to start doing surgery. What? Of course not. This coming by faith means this is a spiritual reality. We need a spiritual kind of surgery. And the emphasis did not seem to be necessarily on the sort of dwelling by Christ, although it must be spiritual because it is by faith and because it is by the Spirit. It's not on the sort of dwelling or the kind of dwelling. The emphasis seems to be in this passage that Christ dwells not just in our minds but in our hearts. Christ must be go, go beyond just mental exercises and actually get into your inner being, in our hearts. 
The heart is the seat of the life of every person. It's where the human operating system resides. Paul knows that we must know Christ in our hearts so that we can live like Christ. We must know Christ in our hearts as, we, he, as he can be known in chapters 1 through 3 so that we can live like Christ as Paul has expressed in chapters 4 through 6. He says it this way back in chapter 1 verse 18. He's praying that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that your heart can see. Do, do you see the juxtaposition of language? I pray that the eyes of your heart can see so that you know I'm not just talking about the eyes in your head the eyes in your heart can be enlightened to see chapter 4 verse 18 and 19 Paul expresses that we ought to live different lives because our hearts are different not to be like the Gentiles and callous to God about the things of God They are darkened in their understanding, Paul says, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have a heart problem. They have become callous and they have given themselves, he says, up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You can't pursue righteousness except from the heart. And we sing from our heart, Paul says, chapter 5, verse 18 through 19. Don't get drunk with that's debauchery but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart when we get together here and gather as a church we're not getting together to to sing some songs like like a sing-along campfire our hearts are supposed to explode our chests should swell our hearts are singing out praise and thanks to God when Paul talks about Obeying authority, bondservants to their masters. Chapter 5, he talks about, or excuse me, chapter 6, he says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. You need a heart to do this. You're going to have to have a, a heart change in order to obey earthly masters. A sincere heart, he says, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers on the outside only. But as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You got to do it from the heart. Some of you are looking around and you're thinking, I know my boss. There's no way I could possibly obey my earthly masters other than with a sincere heart like I would Christ. Paul's point is that to live out our lives from the heart, we need strength, enabling, empowering to know Christ in our hearts. The emphasis in this passage is not how Christ dwells. It is obviously spiritually, but that Christ goes so far as to take up the residence and reign as deep down as in the heart of men and women. Because that's where we live out from. Jesus is not just invited to sit on the front porch of your life and visit and drink some lemonade in the shade. Christ must come into our hearts and dwell there, reside there, live there, rule there rearrange the furniture there in our house if I have a day alone at home and Colette's gone it's not unthinkable y'all are going to make fun of me I'm fine that some furniture gets rearranged in our house a bed a coffee a couch 
just because, just because I, I start looking around and just thinking that oh, this could be different. And then we move it back, you know, move it back to where it was four years ago, you know, whatever. Who has the authority to move around the furniture in your house? By God's grace, Colette has been very kind to come home and says, well, you know, did it again. Who has the authority to come into your house and put things where they go and tell you this is where things go, tell you this is how the house is run, to tell you to dwell in your house and reign in your house? Not just come over for a visit where you are the benefactor and Jesus is the beneficiary. No room for Jesus in the inn. Oh, but there's room in my heart for you. So glad to serve you. So glad to give you a place. No. His dwelling is a reigning, ruling dwelling in our hearts. We do not invite Jesus into our hearts because we are nice to him. There's an idea floating around and it has been haunting and disrupting real Christianity in the West for some time. And it is the idea that in salvation, I do something for Jesus. I let Jesus in. I invite Jesus in. I accept Jesus into my heart like a good neighbor. No. When Christ dwells in our hearts, he is still the benefactor, and we are the beneficiary. He is the Savior. We are saved. In the illustration that Paul is using, the structure that he is using, we are not there going, oh, Jesus, come on in. Rather, in our own nature, in, in our pre-God-granted, spirit-empowered state, we are propping up chairs in the front door, pushing against their front door with Jesus outside saying, we don't want you in here. We don't want you up in my business. We don't want you coming to my table. God grants Christ to dwell in our hearts only when Christ grants it and the Spirit empowers it does Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. God must give us strength, Paul says, for Christ to dwell in our hearts. What have you prayed for strength to do lately? Maybe just prayed for strength to get up one more day. God, give me the strength to deal with this child in a manner which the state of Texas has decided is legal. God, give me the strength to drive in traffic, the strength to stand in this line at the DMV. God, give me the... Paul prays that God would strengthen the church, that God would enable the church, give them the ability to do something they do not have the ability to do on their own, that he would do this by his spirit in their inner being, that God would give us strength in the inner being so that Christ can dwell there. Only by the spirit of God do we have the strength, only by the spirit of God do we have the ability for Christ to dwell, not just in our minds, but deeper down in our hearts. Which makes sense, we need a spiritual strength for a spiritual exercise which we on our own cannot do because we are spiritually dead. And this week, Callum Page moved here, our new associate pastor and his wife to Austin, arrived on Monday, truckload of things. And I promise, guys, it was not my goal just to not show up and help you move and let other people do it. But I did go by a visit and see in their garage a, a, a lot of heavy things, a lot of heavy looking things, which led me to promptly text some guys to come back and move later after I'd left. 
I just thought about that this week, this idea of they're just sitting there unless someone else with more strength, with more strength comes along and gets them from here to here. They don't move. It just stays. It just doesn't go anywhere. Someone else, not me, has to come lend strength to get those items from the truck into the house. And like that, the the spiritual indwelling of Christ, our spirits can't lift Christ into our inner being. Our spirits can't lift Christ past our minds and move him into our hearts. Only the Holy Spirit of God can get Christ into our inner being that he may dwell there. How could we possibly have to lift the strength? How could we possibly have the strength to lift the magnitude of all that Christ is on a heart level? Our part is simple. Just have faith. Faith in God, in the Spirit, faith in Christ. Church, do you hear what Paul is saying? Paul is saying the church needs Christ. We need to know Christ in order to live like Christ. But unless God grants the Spirit to empower our hearts, we cannot even invite Christ into our hearts to dwell in our hearts beyond our own minds. Paul gives further clarity by spelling it out for us in a different way, in different terms, beginning in chapter 3, verse 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, hear the same thought here again, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We cannot comprehend the love of Christ on our own. Do not believe that God's love in Christ is like our love for tacos or even our love for our family or our love for our nation. That we have these loves and that God's love is kind of the same and so I'm familiar with love and now I can just recognize God's love and it's an easy, it's an easy transfer Consider Paul's words carefully. He is praying that you would know the love of Christ that, what does he say, that surpasses knowledge. This idea is parallel to what he has just said in the previous verses, inner being and dwell in our hearts. Calvin says it like this, it is not enough if the knowledge of Christ dwell on the tongue or flutter in the brain. This is a knowing that goes beyond knowing. To knowing. I don't just know that my wife of 15 years loves me. I know she loves me. I wonder if for you the love of Christ is a true thing, a thing which is acknowledged, but it is a thing not truly comprehended in the heart. So thankful for Dane Ortland, his book, Gentle and Lowly, he talks about it like this. He says, perhaps as believers today, we know God loves us. We really believe that. But if we were to more closely examine how we actually relate to the Father moment by moment, which reveals our actual theology, whatever we say, we believe on paper, many of us tend to believe it is a love, that God's love is infected with disappointment. He loves us, but he's flustered with us, a flustered love. We see him looking down on us as paternal with paternal affection, but slightly raised eyebrows. 
How they are still falling short. How are they still falling short so much after all I have done for them? We picture God wondering. We are now sinning against the light, the Puritans would say. We know the truth and our hearts have been fundamentally transformed and still we fail. And the shoulders of our soul drooped presence of God. Once again, it is a result of projecting our own capacities to love onto God. God is not just pretty good at loving like we love. It's not that we love and God loves and well, God's pretty good at it. In Christ, God's love is so beyond man's love that in order to comprehend it, in order to understand it, we need God's help. Again, Calvin says that the faculties of man could reach Christ's love, the prayer of Paul that God would bestow it must have been unnecessary. Paul's praying that God would help the church know Christ's love shows us that we can only know Christ's love by God's help. You ever had a math problem that you needed a calculator for? I do all the time. One plus one. I can do that one all the time. 360 divided by 60. I know the answer to that one. Took me a minute, but I know the answer to that one. What is 1,567,983 divided by 437? So, now, we live in Austin. Some of you geeks right now, are you're trying to do it in your head. Just stop. You can't comprehend it. I, I need something else. Something else has to help me comprehend and calculate the the magnitude and Paul is wanting us to comprehend what does he say what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know Christ's love how can we comprehend a million miles a million miles a few weeks ago we mentioned the NASA space shuttle launched on Christmas day right now as we sit here and we're doing what we're doing and you go home and watch the Super Bowl tonight or avoid it, whichever is your personal conviction this year. Whereas we sit today a million miles away from Earth, the James Webb Space Telescope is now in orbit around the Earth. Apparently, we can talk to satellites a million miles away from, not, not we, someone in NASA, someone else. I mean, you thought Starbucks had bad Wi-Fi. We're talking to satellites a million miles away. Next time Starbucks isn't working, I just want to go to them and say, we're talking to satellites a million miles away. Can we get some Wi-Fi in this room? The telescope that is a million miles from us has to be kept extremely cold, at least negative 370 degrees Fahrenheit in order to observe faint infrared 13 billion year old light signals 
without any interference from other sources of warmth, which would be the heat temperature, so that it can send 458 gigabytes of data a million miles back to Earth every day for the next 20 years. Some of you still have computers that don't have 458 gigabytes on them. But the point is, these are incomprehensible measurements. The scope of temperatures and height and depth and, and length and light and visible. And it, it, it's just mind-boggling. And this is what Paul has in mind when he prays that we might have the strength, the ability to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth, the, the fullness, the expanse of the full measure of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's a reflection of the nature of knowledge in the inner being. We need God's strength, God's enabling to help us know something beyond just knowing about it. Beyond our minds into our hearts. R.C. Sproul is probably known better for, for better or worse, known better for his, what's now a popular gif and meme, his phrase, what's wrong with you people? I may never have even heard this, but in evangelicalism, it's one of the funnier moments of R.C. Sproul's life, who's now passed. That phrase, what's wrong with you people? I have a couple in the church here. I won't name their names, but she's our admin, and <laughs> they're married. A couple got me a, a mug, black coffee mug. It's got a picture of... R.C. Sproul with his eyes barely beaming through his, his eyelids. The line under, underneath it. What's wrong with you people? So when you, when you come in my office and you see on the pastor's desk a mug that says, What's wrong with you people? Let me give some context for that. 2014 Ligon National Conference. R.C. Sproul was asked with another, a few guys on a panel, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why when man first sinned was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? That was the question. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why when man first sinned was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Everyone on the panel was quiet. Sproul spoke up. Didn't we just have this question a second ago? That God's punishment for Adam was so severe? This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God had said, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And instead of dying, Thanatos, that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences, a curse, applied for some time. But the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman, and the punishment was too severe? R.C. Sproul says, what's wrong with you people? The crowd begins to laugh a minute. He says, I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. 
The question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have an understanding of our sin, an understanding of our sin, and any understanding of who God is, he said, that's the question, isn't it? Why wasn't God infinitely more severe? Do you hear, R.C., what's wrong? We don't grasp the immensity of God and His holiness and the immensity of the meaning of us raised up out of the dirt, he said, shaking our fist at God, telling Him we will do it our way. And because we don't hold those things in tension, we tend to not understand the immensity of Christ's love. Do you know that today Nothing keeps us from dying and everlasting judgment. Nothing keeps us from God's wrath. Nothing except God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus dying on the cross for our sin, His loving sacrifice It's the only thing that washes away our sin. And Paul is praying for the kind of understanding that surpasses knowledge, a knowledge which is in the mind, but also surpasses the mind, gripping our souls so much so that we quit asking questions. Why is God so mean? Why is God so severe? Those are fruit of not truly grasping God's holiness and our sinfulness. So as Paul moves in his letter from the indicative, the doctrine, to the imperative, how we should, he stops and he prays that God would grant that we grasp it. That we could grasp what he's been holding up, the the diamond that he's been holding up of the gospel for the first three chapters. And he holds it up. He says, look at Christ, all the blessings in Christ, the unity in Christ, the power in Christ. And I'm just praying that God would help You have the strength to comprehend it, to know it beyond knowledge. I wonder if you believe that God is strong enough to give us that comprehension. Can God actually, actually affect the heart and the mind like that? My mind, my family member's heart, a neighbor's heart. Maybe you've given up on God's ability to reach down in there and change someone's heart. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your parents. You've given up. God, too hard, too callous, too cold, too dead. Years ago, I heard a debate between Oxford mathematician John Lennox and the atheistic professor Richard Dawkins hosted in Birmingham, Alabama, that bedrock of modern philosophical debate. At the beginning of the debate, the host comes out onto the stage with John Lennox on his left, Christian, and Richard Dawkins, the atheist, on his right, and he begins with a joke. We've brought you here, he says to the audience, 
under rather false pretenses. There actually isn't a debate tonight. Richard Dawkins just wanted to come here to the Bible Belt to announce his conversion to the Christian faith. The host laughed. Richard Dawkins laughed. The audience fairly awkwardly laughed and clapped. And I just remember thinking, it's not funny. I've probably chimed in as many jokes as anyone else over the years about crude things, but that's not funny. It's not funny. I read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins before watching that bait, and I just thought, this is sad. The book is thoroughly intellectually inconsistent. I'm not even good at philosophy, and it's a train wreck. But it's sad. The hurt and the pain, the skepticism, the hardness of heart that comes out in his writing. And to joke as if that would never happen. Do we actually believe that God by his strength can lift Christ from our minds, place him in our hearts? That we would know the love of Christ beyond our minds with a knowledge that surpasses knowledge in our hearts. It's what Paul was praying in Ephesians chapter 1. He's praying that God would give the church a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the greatness of his might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. What is God's power to awaken a heart or to get Christ into a heart so that our comprehension and our knowledge and our faith are deep down at the heart level? It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's impossible, except with God. If God's power can get Jesus from the dead, can get Jesus from the cold, lifeless, rock covered tomb, then he can lift Jesus into the coldest, most calloused, and most hostile heart. John Joseph is a lead pastor at Chevrolet Baptist Church just outside of Washington, D.C. He gave his testimony publicly at Together for the Gospel in 2012. Just hear this simple, forthright testimony of a cold, dead heart being strengthened to comprehend the love of Christ for a sinner. He says, my name is John Joseph. From an early age, I was totally immersed in sin. And as I grew older, the nature and degree of my sin became more grievous. As I transitioned to college and early adulthood, the roots of sin that had taken hold in the past began to flourish and had taken hold of my life. Giving myself completely to sin, I eventually became an alcoholic, a drug user, and a cocaine dealer. I dishonored my parents. I was a liar. I used everyone and everything for personal gain, and I was full of lust and greed and hate. But God in his mercy removed me from my surroundings 
In late 2008, four years before he's sharing this for the first time in 2012 publicly like this, in late 2008, while at Blockbuster, he says, I came across Bill Mayer's mockumentary, Religulous. And as I began to watch, I was annoyed at Mayer's obvious bias and portrayal of religion. So I got on Google and searched for a debate on Christianity. By the way, if that's to you today, you are looking for help. What do I do? What do I read? Where do I go to find out about Christ? God is very kind to work through Google, but there's a wonderful church right here in front of you. Come ask me. Come ask someone else in this church, what do I read? How do I know? What can I learn about Christianity? He got on Google, searched for a debate on Christianity. What I found, he says, was a leading apologist who over the course of the next year would completely destroy everything I believed in. As I continued to search for more teaching on the web, God in his mercy would send me to Desiring God Ministries. On January 5th of 2010, I sat down to listen to a message on John 3.16. And prior to beginning the sermon, Dr. Piper prayed that someone would be brought from the darkness into the light. Being faithful and true, our father answered, not five minutes into the message, I sat devastated by the reality of my sin and the impending judgment that awaited. I knew that I deserved hell. I knew that I was going to hell. I was, however, then overwhelmed by the knowledge that my sin had been forgiven by the blood of Christ. His grace and mercy did not stop at salvation as he continued giving ways beyond what I could imagine. Had you seen me, he says, had you seen me three years ago, you would have likely thought I was unreachable. Seriously, there's no reason for me to be standing here outside of God's power. But I stand here by grace as a testament to the power of the gospel. He says there's not a soul in the world that is too lost or too dead or too far out of God's reach. Do not underestimate the power of this gospel. John Joseph, now pastor, Chevrolet Baptist Church. Church, do two things. Pray for God to get Christ into our hearts by faith. For God to do something that God would grant us to know the love of Christ in our inner being, in our hearts, to comprehend it, to do the, the math of it and explore the expanse of it, that we would comprehend the love of God deeply and spiritually. The church doesn't grow. The church doesn't get better unless we live out of a sense, the inner knowledge driving our hearts by the love of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We will not give ourselves up as sacrifices unless we in our hearts treasure and love the smell of the fragrant offering of Christ himself. Unless we see in our hearts that Christ's sacrifice to God is beautiful. Pray, pray that we might know Christ with a knowledge that surpasses the mind and enters into the heart. Pray for Christ in marriages that spouses would not give up on one another. Pray for Christ in children. Parents, do not give up praying for God to empower and strengthen and enable your children to know the love of Christ in their hearts. 
Pray for Christ in the public square. Pray for Christ for your enemies. Pray the love of Christ would be known by your neighbors. Pray that God would help the church, Paul's even praying, be enabled to know the love of Christ. And as Paul has done in the first three chapters, make all of your discipleship about Christ. Make all of your discipleship about Christ. One of the most incredible things that happens in the book of Ephesians is that Paul tells the church he's praying for them to have a spirit of revelation. But Paul doesn't say, I'm I'm praying that God gives you a spirit of revelation and I just can't wait to hear what he tells you. I just can't wait to hear what he reveals to you. I can't wait to hear what truths come to you. I mean, I'm an apostle and I've got authority, but I can't wait to hear what God tells you. That's not what Paul's doing. I pray that you would have a spirit of revelation so that you can know the thing I'm telling you about. I'm holding it right up in front of you. It's like a painting on the wall. I'm just praying that you can look at it and see how beautiful it is. That you would be enabled. So in that sense, hold up Christ as Paul has been doing the first three chapters. Hold up the doctrine of Christ, the mentioning of Christ, the name of Christ, the love of Christ, the blood of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the return of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ. Hold up Christ in your discipleship with others. Mention Christ. If we're going through life groups, we're not talking about Christ. What are we talking about? If you're getting together for one-on-one discipleship on Tuesday morning, you're having coffee, but you're not talking about Christ, what are we doing? I already know that you know God's power. Now I'm praying that you would know it, Paul says. And he tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, I'm praying that you would know it, and I'm telling you where you can see it. In Jesus raising from the dead. Hold up Christ while we also pray that we can know Christ. We are never in danger of thinking of Christ too much. In your reading, in your Bible study, in your life groups, make it about Christ. We need to know Christ that we might live Christ let's pray Father you know our hearts You know when we lie down, you know when we rise up, you know the thoughts in our minds before they become words on our tongue. And you search us and help us to see, help us to be aware ourselves of our need for Christ. We pray that your spirit would empower us to know beyond our mind knowledge to know Christ. We pray that as Christ is upheld in our church, in our small groups, in our discipleship, in our fellowship, in our personal Bible reading, in our sermon listening, that Christ would be the thing that is revealed to us. That Christ's love would be comprehended. That the immensity, the expanse of Christ could be measurable to us in spiritual terms. That we could enjoy and grasp the heights, the depths, the width, and the length of the love of Christ. Father, we come weak and just pray that you would grant it. That you would grant it, that the Spirit would empower us to know the love of Christ. 
Help us leave here today overwhelmed, shaken, repentant, realizing, remembering the love of Christ for us. Dear God, we give you thanks. We give you praise for Jesus Christ. Our singing is in the name of Christ, thanking you for everything. We do pray that this week you would help us to live in comprehension of Christ by your spirit that we may grasp and understand the love of Christ on the cross for our sins. And by knowing Christ, we might this week live Christ. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.